0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Tom Siebel, the chairman and CEO of C3AI, an artificial intelligence company that he founded in 2009, three years after selling the company he founded in 1993. The customer solutions management company Siebel Systems to Oracle. He launched the new company for energy and diagnostic applications, but has since grown dramatically, going public last year and is now valued at more than $2 billion. And one of the world's leading AR firms that is pursuing a market uh, that he estimates to be a third of a trillion dollars. Tom, welcome back to the program and thanks so very much for joining us again.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. You joined us in, uh, in January, and I, I want to get to your plans to expand your government and, and defense business in a minute, but I want to follow on on the discussion that we had earlier uh, this year about how to think about AI uh, at the Pentagon and Congress's demand for a better accounting of, from DOD, of its AI efforts. Lawmakers have expressed concerns that the Pentagon was launching all manner of artificial intelligence efforts internally without having the right skills with which to execute this. Where, Where does the review now stand? Where does that accounting now stand?
1: Well, it, you know, I'm not really certain there is anybody uh, in the United States government who is actually accountable for the AI strategy. There appears to be about you know, liter- scores to hundreds of points of accountability. And so it doesn't, it doesn't seem to come together anywhere uh, yet. Uh, there is this new office of the CDAO. We'll see where that goes. Um, the uh, that kind of, you know, supersedes Jake, uh, the joint AI command, which, um, you know, I think they tried, but didn't really accomplish much. I think that, you know, much of the conversation as it relates to AI uh, in the government today, in the defense community today, takes place you know, outside of NSA and outside of CIA, I'd say it takes place in the defense community. It takes place at a pretty remedial level in that everybody is fixated on um, these shiny little like machine learning objects and deep learning objects. And they're focused on that. And those being, while they are necessary, they are a, you know, small component of the overall system that you need to assemble to, de- to deploy an efficacious, you know, enterprise scale um, defense or intelligence AI system that handles something like, you know, the coordination of swarms or the navigation of hypersonics or readiness right. or logistics or AI for cybersecurity, which are becoming you know, um, you know I think. Necessary requirements to be able to conduct um, a an effective uh, defense organization in the twenty
0: first century. The administration has tried to put sort of uh, focal points of effort, whether it's on quantum computing. Um, we've we've known that if you don't have closer to one throat to choke, ultimately driving change becomes sort of a difficult thing. I mean, is is this the right approach? And if it's not the right approach, what is the best approach to do this? Because one of the challenges, and I want to get your thoughts a little bit more on this in a minute, is you know the, the right way to do this is crawl, walk, run, maybe then sprint. Whereas it seems like too often the department is trying to sprint and in a consequence sort of getting itself um, a, a little bit into trouble in terms of not having some of the foundational skill sets. And I want to also get to culture change in a minute. But from an organizational standpoint, how is it that we need to look at this to drive more centrally a deeper understanding of data science, um, a deeper understanding of artificial intelligence. You know, it's not as Heather Penny of the Mitchell Institute says, pixie dust that you can just sprinkle on stuff to solve it. What's, what's the sort of foundational senior level approach that we need to this? If we're going to go from sort of, a, you know, sort of everybody doing their own thing to actually rowing in the same direction?
1: Well, these are very, when you apply AI, at the intersection of AI and defense, you find extraordinary large and complex uh, defensive and offensive uh, weaponry. And the the approach in the US Department of Defense today is that we have 600 independent projects to build comprehensive uh, enterprise AI platforms. Now, as it relates to AI at the intersection of defense and AI, we are absolutely at war with China. And I think we, you know, you know, as much as I hate to say it, I think we might have to look to China for best practices. I think today they are um, more than a legitimate risk. I think they are outperforming us. Now, their means of governance, um, while I wouldn't recommend it, uh, is 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 pretty efficient, the NRDC meets, they write the you know what if 14th or 15th five-year plan, okay? They come up with a strategy and then everybody in China operates in lockstep uh, to build this platform as they are doing for, uh, for hypersonics, for subsurface, for AI, for cybersecurity, and uh, for space. And AI is at the heart of all that. Now I can assure you, China is not building 600 independent platforms uh, for uh, enterprise AI, this would be like building 600 independent platforms say to control the you know air traffic control system in the United States, except in order of magnitude more complex than that. And uh, you know they are building one and everybody knows the one system and it's been mandated by the guys in, in top from Xinhua and the Politburo and the NRDC. And they are building one system and we are building 600. Um so I think that it, unfortunately, it, 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 it seems to take a adverse event, you know, like Pearl Harbor or like 9/11, for, the, for us to wake up and get our act together or or Sputnik, and do something very significant and I suspect there will be an adverse event, and then we will get our act together the way that we always do, and uh, we will respond very quickly. I think that will incorporate like it did in space, like it did in semiconductors, uh, like it did in the Manhattan Project, significant um, uh, participation from the private sector, and we will get a private-public partnership, and we will deliver solutions that work. Um, But if we don't start delivering solutions, we're going to be in a, you know, in a world of hurt. I believe that, you know, outside of the intelligence community, um, I think there are, you know, there, there is not one, um, excuse me, there are very few uh, defense and enterprise AI applications that are efficacious. Yep. You know, uh, rabbit's attainment office with readiness for aircraft. You have the work that um, DSCA is doing in clearance adjudication inside of threat. Um, you um, you know, outside of that, it, it's it's hard to find much that's going on in production that's actually
0: working. So, so how do you, uh, Tom? I mean, you know, what, what I thought was uh, you know, two sort of interesting data points on this, right? I mean, Trey Stevens of Andreal uh, joined us recently, and he, and he you know, sort of made a damning statement that, you know, that, he, that they're a software company, but began selling hardware in which their novel software was embedded because the department knows how to buy hardware, but not software. Um, and we find that in the case of AI, we're in a similar uh, situation. Uh, you know, I was at a conference in London and an RAF officer, data scientist, very, very bright guy, was embedded uh, at the prime minister's office and and was basically saying, look, unless you make culture change, people, you're not going to get to the best place in harnessing data, artificial intelligence to help you make better decisions at the end of the day. How do we drive the culture change part of this? Because unless you're looking at data the right way, and what AI can do, last time you joined us, you gave kind of a great discourse on what AI is and what it isn't, um, you know, it's not a panacea. You have to know what it is you want to accomplish with it and then you have to invest and do a lot of hard work to get you there. What, how, how what, what, do you see culture changing? And if you don't see culture changing, then how do we drive that, that culture in the department to better understand, particularly at a senior level, the importance, the opportunity, the pitfalls, the challenges, et cetera, that goes with this? Because absent the culture change, you might not actually get to where it is we need to get.
1: I think the culture change, it's not so much that we know how to procure hardware and we don't know how to procure software. I'm not sure I accept that. I I think we don't know how to procure. Okay, and in, um, let's say, you know, before we get to say you know into the '60s and even into the '70s, um, the federal government used to be able to pick a strategic partner, like they did with Lockheed with drones, like they did with Texas Instruments with semiconductors. Okay, um, and um, and and pick a strategic partner and get the job done. Whether it was building the internet, whether it's building semiconductors, semiconductors were very part of very much part of you know kind of a necessary requirement for what President Kennedy wanted to do with, you know, with, with, with getting to the moon. Uh, Okay. And the, um, today due to the way things have panned out in the last few decades, the procurement process has changed so that to to uh, you know to make sure that everything is fair, you know every little component of every little system needs to be separately bid out, and so we we're, we're trying to assemble collections of scores to hundreds of vendors to build something. Whether this is Titan, whether this is jadc two, whether this is whether this is dealing with um, you know the development of hypersonics. Um, they're unable, the government is, it's unlawful to identify a strategic vendor and say, this is who we're going to work with to get the job done. And I think until we return to that procurement model, I think it's unlikely that these systems will be built. And we will return to that procurement model, or or else we will all be speaking Mandarin. And, uh, you know, where the government will be able to pick a strategic partner in the private sector, one or more, okay, and work with them to get the, the system uh, developed, whether this is, you know, AI for uh, cybersecurity, whether this is AI for, you know, controlling swarms, hypersonics, cybersecurity, uh, readiness, logistics, whatever it might be. And if we, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty important that we succeed at this. And uh, right now I think we're, there's a lot of fumbling around going on, but people are realizing that we're fumbling around. Okay, right. and we saw to you and I talked about this with the with the most recent um, with the most recent um, uh, uh, defense authorization that directed uh, the Secretary of Defense uh, to um, you know to give a primacy to the private sector, okay, in the development of these AI systems. Uh, for the defense community, as opposed to the defense community attempting to build these things from scratch themselves or build them from scratch with uh, collections of various systems integrators, as they attempted to do with this joint common foundation, which kind of came crumbling down around them.
0: Um, do so is it is the so is this a, a leadership problem, an approach problem? Uh, because the Pentagon has the tendency of looking at things like this as we're buying a service, right? And, and that might not necessarily, I mean, is that the right way to be looking at how it is we go about procuring this um, and if you say that the bigger challenge is fundamentally how the Pentagon buys, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who would agree with you on that. And, and one of the things I think that Bill LaPlante and Heidi Hsu, uh and the whole team are trying to address, right? I mean, how do we get better at buying these complex systems uh, and, and doing it smarter? From an AI perspective, is it right to treat it as any other service in the way the DOD would buy it? Or do, is AI different than your average services provider? Because it would seem to me that that is much more a partnership on data that you need, right? It strikes me as being something different than your average services provider.
1: I'm not sure that the government can procure AI. So AI is a, is a capability within, a, um, within an enterprise software, within a, within a software system that is, um, that is necessary, but not sufficient to meet any number of requirements of the defense committee, be it again, readiness, logistics, insider threat. Okay. So, I mean, we also need, you know, persistence, data fusion, queuing, ETL, managing pipeline, machine learning services, data visualization, application development tools. So AI is one of, a hundred components, okay? And to buy this thing called AI, which is basically, you know, the ability to develop machine learning models. While it is interesting, it is not sufficient to solve any real problem that the United States federal government has. And if we get out of, you know, defense and we get, well, even, in, you know, you know, one of the biggest issues to, I guess, veterans administration is not formally within the defense budget, uh, um, um, but it, you know, I mean, there's enormous opportunities in precision health, but this business on focusing on buying AI, uh, with all due respect, it's kind of crazy. Um, AI is just a capability that you have within a large complex system, and there are there are organizations that make these large complex systems that incorporate AI and um, a- a- enable you to solve problems for which. Um, AI is necessary, but again, it is not sufficient and it's like kind of one hundredth of the problem. So if you procure a, the ability to develop an AI solution or you, you procure you know, machine learning models, you basically have some peach parts on the floor. These are like you know, flap actuators for a B-1 right. bomber. Okay, you got to get all the other million components in a B-1 bomber to get the darn thing to fly Okay, and, and complete its mission.
0: So what are the pieces of this that, uh, that have to, right? I mean, if we're going to take a break the problem down to its elemental sets and, and sort of get it right, right? I mean, and as you said, uh, this is a very serious competition. The other guy is uh, serious about it. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think we, we both have an anti-authoritarian bend, right? But authoritarian governments can do this kind of stuff. Uh, better maybe than we can in democratic systems that are far more distributed and driven by everybody's self-interest. You know, From, from, from your standpoint, what's the right combination in industry, government, uh, as well as the operator, right? I mean, I think Mitchell's uh, uh, Heather Penny makes an interesting point that unless you bring the operator into this, there's going to be a disconnect in, in how this works. What are, what are the elements and the right way to do this in the most thoughtful way Because actually your approach will guide what the outcome is, right? If you, you know what I mean? Too often people want to use AI or data uh, as you discussed the last time, right? To reinforce biases or justify decisions they already want to make which is not the right way to use it. So what's the right way for all of these elements whether it's industry, government and the operator to come together to get the best outcome especially if you want to do this, not just at scale but across actually a vast number of, of, of programs and priorities.
1: Well, I think that you know what we have going on between China and the Western world today is kind of maybe the the ultimate test of two fundamentally uh, diametrically opposed uh, political philosophies. In one case, we have a top-down command and control totalitarian. A model that's actually pretty efficient. Okay. It works pretty well. Now, in the Western world, we do things, you know, in much in the free we have free markets and it's much more messy. Okay. And and, you know, innovation in much of the innovation rather than coming from the state or state-driven models comes from storefronts in the Bronx, okay, and startups in the Beltway and garages in Palo Alto. And so I think that you know, if we're gonna, if the this is the ultimate test of, so our system is a little messy. We have this free enterprise system and our strength is in the private sector. And the question is, is the federal government gonna be able to leverage the strength of the private sector and the academy, by the way. By the academy, I mean, you know, the research and uh, the institutions that we have, okay, at the, the both the, uh, Uh, the state and private level and and utilize these resources to solve the problem. That's the opportunity. And I think somebody needs to to come up with a clear statement of the problem. Okay. Um, Put it out to bid and expect somebody to build it. And honestly, it's not going to be Lockheed. Okay. It's not going to be Northrop Grumman. I mean, it's not going to be Boeing. I mean, these guys are, you know, these guys have a motivation to take, to make projects take as many years as possible with as many many hours as possible okay you know before they get to the change orders this is how they make the big bucks okay and you know we need to get the private sector involved uh to deliver systems quickly it is within the state of the art we solve these problems in the private sector every day okay at the scale of DOD. I mean, DOD is rough, $600 million business, okay? I mean, we do it at the company scale of companies like Shell. Shell's, I mean, I'm sorry, it's a $300 billion business, a $600 billion business. Shell's like a $300 billion business. We do it there, we do it at places like, you know, Saudi Aramco does it independently of us, but they do it. Okay, um, and so it's, you know, this can be done. It is done at the private sector very, very efficiently. And the public sector is just a little behind. And I mean, the Western world has a way of catching up. And unfortunately, it frequently takes a crisis for us to do it. Uh, You know, kind of see World War II for details. Uh, But, you know, know, I'm confident the story will end
0: well. Um, I mean, I I couldn't agree with you uh, more about at least there is a sense of urgency um, that this senior folks in the department are telegraphing. Uh, that was the case in the last administration, I would argue, uh, that uh, that it started in the uh, Obama administration, in fact, about, hey, we've got to start moving faster and obviously starting to develop a lot of top secret systems that are uh, beginning to mature and, and getting near fielding and disclosure now. Um, from a so so the question uh, then is about how uh, c3ai can grow in the government uh, and the defense uh, space tom um, obviously, that's a priority uh, you've uh, hired uh, onto your team, some very thoughtful, uh, retired military leaders. H.R. McMaster is uh, part of the team, Lieutenant General Cardin is part of the team, and you just brought aboard uh, Air Force General John Hyten, one of um, truly the most uh, sp- strategic and thoughtful uh, uh, leaders that we had, who was vice chairman of the joint staff and integral to developing um, sort of really sophisticated war fighting concepts for the, for the future what does your growth strategy look like? Because you're articulating a demand for a much faster commercial model, even if people in the department are interested in it, and yet it is populated by very large heritage contractors uh, that see this as part of their purview uh, right, uh, to inject this kind of capability into their systems. Obviously, um, you know, if if you make B21s, you want to sell more B21s, just like if you make F35s, you want to sell more F35s. Or if you make buggy whips, you you want to sell buggy whips, even if your customer may not want those buggy whips, right? How, how do you grow in a market like this? What's What's your growth strategy? And where do you want to be in five years? And how do you get there?
1: understand we are a commercial software vendor okay and we serve the needs of the banking community the telecommunications community health community oil and gas uh, manufacturing um, uh, pharmaceutical at the largest scale okay shell coke industries and now which is largest utility in the free world duke con ed new york power authority and so we we are a commercial vendor now we we do are privileged to be able to serve uh, the United States government and defense and intelligence communities in, in many ways. And to the extent that we have the opportunity to serve, we just we feel privileged to do so. But unlike other companies we have mentioned to, in this call, fine companies like Anduril and Plan I mean they are they they are in the de, in, in, okay, in the defense and intelligence business. Okay, we are not. Um, so we are growing in EMEA, We are growing in Asia, ex-China. We're growing in where we don't do business. Okay, we're growing in, okay, in 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 North America across all sectors of business, and we are growing in the defense and intelligence community. So there, as you've mentioned, we brought aboard the vice chair of the Chiefs uh, of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, we brought together the, the the commander of the U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, National Security Advisor, um, uh, Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, uh, Rick Leggett, former Deputy Director of the NSA, uh, 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 Denny McGinn, uh, former Assistant Secretary of the Navy. So we have some very, very competent advisors. We have been uh, dramatically improved, uh, uh, increasing the uh, footprint of our, uh, our, our staff, Okay, out in Washington, DC, supported by people in Redwood City. Uh, it probably is, you know, the federal government business will remain 10 to 20% of our business in the long run. We're now, because of the work that we're doing, you know, for the Air Force, for the Robertson Sustainment Office, for the, for the uh, DCSA, defense, uh, defense Intelligence Agencies, and others. Uh, we're not being invited to provide these same capabilities to the UK Ministry of Defense, uh, the French Air Force. And uh, to the extent that we have the opportunity to serve, you know, allies of the United States government, we are, again, privileged to do so. So I think this will be, this is a, it is a rapidly growing business for us. It is a very healthy business for us. Uh, these, um, these, the, it, it is a little bit, you know, daunting. Uh, you know the nature of the responsibility you feel when you're involved in some of these systems, because you know if we fail, people die, and that one takes pause over that. Um, so, but we we are rapidly expanding the business, and um, and it it. it you know, I'm confident that business has expanded a good clip in the, in, in the next five years. There are other fine companies in the business like Anduril, which uh, to my knowledge is not a competitor of ours, but they're also in the AI business. They have some you know, very smart guys there, Christian Bros and others and people there. And, uh, and I know that Palantir serves the government in a number of ways. I think they're mostly involved in kind of data fusion and visualization, but from everything I can tell, it appears to be a fine company.
0: And, and so what is it that you think differentiates you guys, right? I mean, uh, and, and what are the lessons you've taken from the uh, Palantirs uh, of the world, right? I mean, they got an early uh, start. Uh, you know, have had a couple of setbacks or regrouping and and charging back into the space. You've got uh, some of the big heritage uh, defense companies uh, that are doing this. You've got a whole slew of smaller companies uh, that are trying to do this, everything from rebellion to improbable and, and the like. What do you think is the advantage that C3 AI is bringing to the market that differentiates you from what other folks are doing? C3
1: is the world's largest provider of enterprise AI applications, okay? So, so if we go to very large scale, like the European grid, like very large oil companies, um, uh, large uh, manufacturing companies like Coke Industries, that's roughly a $100 billion business, um, chemical companies like Lionel Bissell, Baker, yes, we're we're the largest provider of enterprise AI applications in the world. So that that is our advantage, okay. And we provide end-to-end solutions that handle that. In addition, we provide turnkey forty-two turnkey applications that do things like AI-based predictive maintenance, fraud detection, insider threat, uh, 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 what have you, that can be applied uh, very, very, really immediately uh, to achieve the Uh, And we're the only company that provides uh, a large family of pure key enterprise AI applications. So that's our advantage is that we provide an end-to-end solution. Palantir is a fine company. As far as I can tell, they are a professional services business that's primarily involved in data fusion and visualization. That would be data fusion and visualization is something we do through software not services and it, it it we have you know enormous capability there but it, it provides about 5% of their footprint andro I'm not sure what andro does I know there are some very bright people there I think they've converted into a hardware business with software installed I don't know what they do uh, and we don't encounter them competitively but you know most of my experience with andro is for just kind of knowing Christian Bros to be a very bright guy uh, having read uh, uh, his book the kill chain which I don't know I'm sure you read it I mean it's it's
0: a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great book
1: it's a great book and so I'm sure it's a fine company I really don't know what they do uh, the alter the alternate the alternative to buying the solutions from us in the private sector or the public sector in the in the public sector case is to try to bring together one or more, you know, Beltway bandits like Lockheed Martin or Northrop Common, who will put, you know, a thousand people on a project, 2000 people on a project and try to, you know, build something over a period of about five years. And, uh, you know, which is, you know, the government kind of historically likes to do. Um, I think it's literally impossible that, they will succeed at that. So that the so the competitor to us is to try to build it yourself. Now we spent 10 years and a billion dollars building this C3 AI platform. So it was not a small investment. Okay. Right. It was not public sector money. And uh, it's tried, tested, and proven. And our competitive advantage is that, you know, we've spent the last 13 years building this and it and it works.
0: But but one of the challenges, Tom as you know, as a student of history, is you, know, you, you can build a better mousetrap that addresses what your customer needs, but the procurement process, the way that we go about doing things ends up actually working against you, right? I mean, as you said, at one point, uh, the department was perfectly comfortable going to pervert preferred providers with a track record of success and say, hey, look, build me this. Uh, whereas now, more often than not, you will go to the department and you'll say, hey, here's a clever idea and I've actually solved your problem and I put my skin in the game to do it. And then the department goes, Tom, that's a brilliant idea. Let's now compete this for everybody. Then everybody shapes the requirement to make sure that you know it favors their mousetrap. And at the end of the day, you've taken three years to compete it, right? Not the commercial cycle that you're used to, uh, which is a couple of months, uh, and then you end up on the losing end of this, right? I mean, so what has to change in terms of how we go about doing this? Because you're you're already at the tenth generation of what you do on the commercial in the commercial marketplace. By the time you're out of the first step of a military competition contract, right? It, it, you know what I mean? So.
1: Well, now, I think that's a great point. But now, 13 years into communicating these solutions to the federal government, 13 years later, okay, we now have, I think, six or $700 million worth worth of production OTAs, where, you know, any organization in DOD can purchase any one of our solutions, uh, should they so desire. Uh, be it Missile Defense Agency, Department of the Air Force, or whoever it might be, and they can do it, okay, without an RFP as a sole source procurement. So today, I think the ceiling that people can procure is, I think there's two or three contract vehicles out there. One is a half a billion. Okay, one is a hundred million. And I think there's another for, a nine, for 90 million out there. So the, it is, uh, they, they have put the vehicles in place, for enabling uh, the defense community to purchase our solutions without a competitive bid, without an RFP, the, the, we have passed all the security criteria, we have been vetted in every, every which way till Sunday and the pricing is agreed. So those traps that most companies fall into are, have kind of been, uh, those, uh, those potholes have kind of been filled for us.
0: Um, let me let me ask you one one last uh, question, right? I mean, nine months or or seven months or six months, even uh, in your universe is a lot of time. And actually, there's been an enormous change. For example, even in the quantum world, uh, right? I mean, the National Institutes of Standard and Technology uh, have have put standards out. That it looks like we're doing a whole bunch more on this than I think that people uh, appreciated. And we're now starting to talk a little bit uh, about it and starting to get guidance. How's the business? How's your end of the business changing, and how does quantum computing um, change how everything is is going to work? Right, because you're in the business of making sense of vast quantities of data, and depending on how you've engineered your quantum calculations, uh, it could be very, very helpful and advantageous. Talk, t- you know, and and this is just in the last six months where it looks like. We're um, on on the cusp of, of the somewhat more major developments. What, what's your sense on on where the technology is taking us overall? But then, what the quantum the cusp the, of this quantum revolution. The last big
1: shift in information technology was the emergence of the cloud. Okay, and the and the cloud. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we used to compute on you know eight bit processors that that were. Um, that were dedicated processors that operated at like, you know, 300 hertz cycles. Well, today with the cloud, we can string together, you know, tens of thousands of virtual machines operating in parallel, each of which are capable of doing 24-bit floating-point operations at 3 gigahertz cycles. So this is... This is computational capacity that was, you know, unthinkable 20 years ago. Enable us to solve problems that were previously unsolvable. Many of which we've mentioned uh, in the last 20 minutes. Now, you know, there is work going on in quantum. I'm very close to the people at MIT and Berkeley and Illinois and Carnegie Mellon and Stanford, who are at the leading edge of that. Okay. Now, aside from the kind of marketing drivel that's kind of coming out of places like like, um, you know, IBM. Okay. And, you know, I mean, the last, you know, the last big marketing pitch was Watson that went on for about a decade before that collapsed. Uh, You know, the information that I get is I don't think quantum is imminent. Okay. I I think it's a decade before we see anything that's really practical there that we can use. And as it becomes available and it's going to be like 5g, Okay, as five G becomes real, it just makes our systems uh, more efficacious and faster. Okay, and okay, and, and, and hard stop. As quantum becomes available, we'll um, we'll be able to take available take make uh, be able to use that computing power to make you know process information faster, larger sets of information, massive data fusion problems, and to be able to provide you know real time solutions when we're dealing with things that are moving at hypersonic, you know, (laughs) literally hypersonic um, speeds. So I I don't share this optimism that, um, you know, quantum is something we're going to see in the next few years. You know, I think that, you know, I I think we're looking at a decade before we can see anything there that's usable. And, you know, I mean, there's other developments there that, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical of that other people know is going to happen. Like, you know, unautomated, you know, unmanned autonomous automobiles. Sorry, just don't buy it. Okay. And, um, um, you know, that's that's relatively mundane compared to quantum.
0: Tom, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure uh, to have you back on and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much for all your time.
1: The pleasure was all mine. Thank you very much.